Hey, what is up, um, freelance writers, and welcome back to uh, Freelance Writing Secrets. Um, I want to tell you a funny story today. And uh, first of all, how are you day? How's your day going? Um, this story actually relates back to freelance writing, I promise. But uh, it, it, it's a funny one about Call of Duty. Who here played Call of Duty um, when they were younger? Um, me personally, man, I grew up on gaming you know the first game console I had and you might say oh this is not really like an early game console <laughs> but I grew up on um, the Sega the first game I, I had was Sega I'm young my apologies if you're not because you had game consoles before that but I didn't okay <laughs> and so I remember you know the first game console I had was Sega it had like Toy Story on it and things like that went back things that I don't even remember because I was that young man um, the next game console I had was like the PS1. Yeah, like Breath of Fire, the Spider-Man demo, used to web around the city, real, real crazy stuff. Then uh, the Nintendo 64, and then the, the, the PlayStation 1. And um, because man, me and my brothers, man, we used to stay at house, at house, speaking English, at, <laughs> at the house um, alone since a very, very young age. Man, I remember being, you know, I was five years old. We were in this uh, little town home um, on the city line of Parkville. I remember it was one bright and sunny morning. It had to be like 10 a.m. in the morning. You know, that little, the soft lights filtering through the shades. Um, and it was me and my mother. We were in this little uh, tiny living room. All my brothers were upstairs. I got two older brothers and two younger brothers. And, um, you know, I had to be like five years old. So my oldest brother had to be like nine. I remember my brother, my mother, because my mother and father were always around. They were going everywhere, <coughs> just trying to put it all together. And I remember my mother teaching me how to do two things. Make oatmeal and make cheese hot dogs for lunch. We had these little hot dogs. They were like slim hot dogs. I don't remember what brand it was, but they had like cheese in the middle. And man, when we were younger, they were so good. Probably wouldn't eat it now, but anyhow. Um, and my parents just kind of left. And so me and my two older brothers, I'm not even sure if my two younger brothers were born yet. They might have been. But what we would do in these days where we were by ourselves, and you can probably relate to some of this, right? Um, what we would do is we would go up into the room and we would take turns literally from morning to night just playing video games all day. We, at that period of time, we were playing like Jet Li Rise to Honor, Jack and Dexter. Uh, what else uh, would we play? Um... We had a bunch of different games. I think at that time we were on a little fat PS2. You know, the PS2 that was kind of thick. Um, that little model of the PS2. Uh, if you touch the like the lens in the back, it would stop working altogether. We played like Perfect Dark on a Nintendo 64. But we used to play games like from the time we woke up, like was early, like 9 a.m. in the morning to like 10 o'clock at night, which our bedtime was probably 9 back then actually. But we used to play games all the time. And so I got, I got really good at games when I was young, or gaming when I was young. I mean, uh, comment below, man. What are some of the things that you got good at? What are some of the things that you relied on when you were young? Because that's just what you did, you know? You didn't really have, you know, we didn't really go outside. We didn't really have friends on the block. You know, our school was in the city, which was a, way, a while away. We didn't know anyone that lived in our neighborhood. Um, you know, the farthest we would go outside is when my father took out trash, and like, we would race him up to the trash can. He would pretend like we beat him, and we would race him back. Beautiful days, man, but, uh, what are some of the things that you grew up playing? Because for me, it was video games. I became, through that process, pretty adept at playing video games. And it was to the point where when Modern Warfare 2 came out, and uh, I promise, you know, you're probably wondering, right? 
Like, how does this relate to freelance writing? I'm, I'm going to tie it in. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and so when uh, I got to middle school and Mortal Warfare 2 came out, that was like the peak and the apex of all gaming. If you're around my age, I just turned 23 a month ago, um, literally like almost exactly a month ago, you probably, you were around for the pinnacle of gaming, Mortal Warfare 2 and Halo 3. And I remember I had a, a little identity, a little pride centered around winning at those games. Like I used to like crush people's soul. Like there was no classmate in my school that could beat me. Um, really, I didn't know anybody that could beat me. You know, it was the MLG, you know, this is T-Squared, Tom Taylor, those guys. They were like the legends and things like that back then. But uh, I couldn't, we, we didn't even face them. Like you would bump into one of them online once in a lifetime or something like that. And then you'd lose and it'd be, it'd be whatever. But 1v1s was big back then. I would 1v1 my brother's friends and win. I would 1v1 my friends at school and win. And just no matter what, I would always win. Um, there were so many different experiences though where I would win and someone would try to cheapen that glory and cheapen that experience. And I'm like, no, I took that one clean. I remember one time, I went over to my homeboy's house up the street. His name was Morgan. He was only a few houses up. And we went down to the basement. And uh, we were we were to, uh, set to play. What were we playing? We were playing uh, Modern Warfare 2 on Favela. And, um, you know, he gave me the broke controller. He clearly did. The analog stick was janky and all all sorts of stuff, right? And I remember, like, um, <laughs> I remember we were playing. And I played the whole match with a USP 45. And I, it was me him and his two younger brothers i think we were on the four split screen real tiny tv too and i nuked him and he gonna try to say like oh man my controller was broke that that all this all this stuff you know what i mean stop stop hating on me man stop hating on me uh and so i switched controls with him boom and he played back i don't think i nuked him the second time but i won by like a similar margin like they killed me like one time it, like, like I was just I was just a beast like it was natural even if you fast forward back to my own household you know it was this controller that I always use and uh there was a lot of rage back then so the controller was a little janky you know I used to get so mad and like slam the controller every time like somebody would kill me and I was on a kill streak you will never know pain until you on like a, a kill streak to get like a nuke or a moab if you're playing Marvel Warfare 3 or even on in Halo if you're going hard and somebody kill you in a cheap phony way like they knife you or something like that that is garbage and so, I, I was on a kill streak, right? Which means, if you don't want a kill streak, because I can't really break it down right now, like, it's a streak of kills. Like, you got 10 kills in a row. And so, you unlock bonuses, like helicopters and cool stuff to help you win the game. And so, uh, you know, I, I had this controller that was all janky and broken up. And uh, it was my controller. It was my Xbox controller. And um, because it was mine, I took a little kitchen knife. And I, like, because I was a stupid little middle school kid, like, I dragged the knife across like the grips of the controller and it was four stripes in the side like cut little cuts in the side of the controller handles on each side and we used to call that controller tiger stripes because of that and um the thing about tiger stripes it wasn't the best controller but i used to grab it and get online and i used to go crazy and i used to get all these kill streaks like i was like i was a i was a beast man but then, like, my brother's controller, when they whenever they would break their controllers or they would run out of batteries or something like that, they'd grab my controller and start to play with it, you know? And whenever they played online or whenever they played against me, their favorite excuse was, oh, this controller's broken, you know? Uh, it's the controller, blah, 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 all this, you know, all this BS, man. Like, you're just not as flame as me. That's the problem, um, to be honest. Um, man, I want to know, can you relate to this experience, man? You, 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 can, you can tell from the hype of my face is something that was like, anyways... So how does this relate to freelance writing, man? Uh, 
man, I remember when I first, you know, hit that wall on Fiverr and I couldn't get past $200 for 10,000 words. I'm like, man, what, you know, because I was stuck in the cycle of, you know, try something, it succeeds and you, you cheer or you try something and it fails and you go to research. Like what goes wrong? You look through all the YouTube videos, you look through all the podcasts about freelance writing, you look through the Facebook videos, you look through everything. And then you come back and you try whatever you, you know, the new technique or the new strategy that you discovered. And I remember trying over and over and over to get past that $200 limit. And whenever I set it higher than $200, no one would ever buy. Um, and so I remember for that, I think that was the first time, or that was around the time when I started pitching, as I explained in the last video, where I went to the Facebook communities, the Facebook freelance writing communities. And, uh, man it's, it's a shame that one a lot of these communities man they're cannibalizing each other a lot of people don't really want to help you out you know it's i feel like it's a lot of things that are unspoken in these communities that aren't really being shared with the newcomers um and even more so than that a lot of people just don't know some of the things that i'm going to teach you in these videos here um because a lot of people which is what this freelance writing secrets is all about they don't have freelance writing business that are automated and bringing them clients on autopilot um and that mechanism of bringing clients on autopilot itself is why some clients are high paying and some are dream clients that you would go on vacation with and some are not when you come to people the dynamic is like you're begging okay i'm not going to go and explain that all over again but basically what i was saying was i went to the freelance writing community and i started to ask around or really beyond asking around, I just started to sit back and observe. I joined like at least seven different freelance writing communities on um, Facebook. And a lot of what I'm teaching you right here is the reason I got banned from a lot of those communities actually, because I would post videos teaching some of this stuff that I'm telling you right now. And uh, for some reason they didn't like it. They like to cannibalize people who have ideas. And so no shade, but this is the real revolution. Um, <laughs> but, but what had happened was I started observing these communities and I realized the general sentiment of these communities. A lot of these people in the freelance writing communities, they were struggling with the same exact problem I was having. And I don't think back then it was really a solution for it. You know, a lot of people were just purely angry. Like they were experiencing a lot of negative emotions and they felt like they couldn't break past that price point too. But what was the rationalization that they were using, right? The rationalization that they were using was that freelance writing is on a competitive uprise and the vehicle of freelance writing was really just going downhill and it wasn't going to work for people anymore people felt like because of the new acts that was coming into place and because foreign competition was popping up all around the world and they were just as good of writers and uh their economies allowed them to charge a lot less because twenty dollars goes way further in their country where they're from and so where these writers are popping up overseas and things like that um, and they can charge less for the product, you know, it's forcing the freelance writing community in, in, in other countries like the U.S., you know, to lower their prices just to get just to be competitive with the people overseas, you know. And so a lot of people felt like it was a price war and the price was going down. You know, it was, you know, the price they were fighting for clients by lowering their price over and over and over again. And everyone felt like they couldn't make any sales um, because other people would just cut them on price. And uh, when I was looking at this going on in the community, it kind of was like, it kind of was, you know, to me, it was kind of like, 
like not again you know honestly like the feeling was like you know which is my entire goal with this as i said and as i always say this was uh what month was this in it was in some period during 2019 i don't remember their exact month but it was a lot before november but still at the time you know this was the vehicle that i had chosen and the first vehicle that had began to work with me to that i was going to use to purge all this freaking idiocy that I was doing on the side, like working at this freaking job that I hate, living at this home that I wanted to escape from, um, not for any negative reasons, but I just wanted to be on my own. I wanted to experience the world. And now I'm hopped into this new industry. And while I made a little bit of profit, I was never going to be able to excel because it was going downhill. And why do I say not again to that situation? Because it reminded me, uh, there was a time where my first, um, my first uh, business actually, uh, it was called the Beat Buddies. It's my first business idea, rather, is what I want to call it. And it lasted from January of uh, 2017 to April of 2017. I always say this, it was very short-lived. And one of the reasons why is because I felt like I couldn't monetize the system. Uh, the beat making, the instrumental, uh, you know, you make beats for rappers, that industry was on the same downward trend as the freelance writing community was or is rather and a lot of people experience this so i remember running ads every single day and bringing teeth to my website and i would have high price things initially off the bat uh, or high price subscription and no one would subscribe and i was really wondering like why why is no one subscribing and uh you know because it was like a 20 dollars per month or something like that and i remember just uh because this was around the time where i was also learning to model people who had already had success in the industry and so the top of the industry were people like uh anno domini and you know uh people like legion beads and they were making a lot of money but i would always go to their youtube and things like that uh and i would see them giving away beats for free and i would go and check on every other producer and give and they you know every producer were giving away beats for free on youtube like here's the link for the free download here's the link for the free download you know there was a strategy to that but I, th that strategy was unbeknownst to me and so i would go to my website and i would lower the price just to try to compete with them and run ads and i would lose so much money because no one would buy on my site because they would rather go to youtube and get the same beats for free and so that eventually uh, had resulted in me lowering the price of my beat subscription to having a free level. Like you can just join for free and I'll send you out beats every week. And uh, long story short, you know, that competitive race to the bottom to get clients to get people signing up because a little people started signing up when I started to make it free. Uh, it, it resulted in me waste essentially just wasting money because I'm spending money on ads and they're coming to get the free product. They don't want to buy anything else from me you know i have these higher tiers where you can pay for more beats or more quality beats and uh no one wants to buy anything from me because they can get them free everywhere and i'm just it got me into a sentiment of resentment for the rest of the community because i'm like you're literally damaging our ability to profit you're handicapping the entire industry like no one can make money because they can just get the same product over here for free um and so i eventually burnt out because i felt like i wasn't being compensated fairly for my work you know i was sending out beats every week for free and uh that was what the industry had resulted in i'm like there's no money here it's completely crashed and burned um beat making is it's 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 just it's just not going to work you know um and for the newcomers that aren't on top already it's not going to work and so i exited that business in april of 2017 
I remember this very vividly, but I fast forward, you know, maybe a few years later, this had also occurred in 2019. Um, I had learned so much about marketing in the meantime. And um, I remember the person that I had modeled my business after, um, Gabe Schilling at Legion Beats. I was listening to a podcast by Russell Brunson, you know, who's a marketer, his right hand man, Dave Woodard, and he was interviewing on his podcast, the guy from Legion Beats. And the guy from Legion Beats was talking about his business. And I remember Dave Woodard uh, asked him, uh, you know, about his business. And long story short, the same guy that was in the same exact industry and on the exact same model as me because I copied him, copied, I modeled him, then copy him, two different things. He had won something called the Two Comma Cup Award, which means he had crossed a million dollars in sales on his, you know, in his funnel or his website. If you don't know what a funnel is, it's a series of web pages. It's hard to explain, but he had crossed over a million dollars. And that was something that kind of had, it, you know, I remember texting my girlfriend like, man, this, you remember the guy Legion Beats? He made a million dollars in that business. Like, because that's the exact same award that I was going for. I was trying to make a million dollars in a funnel and I ended up making a zero. And I, I was just, I was kind of puzzled by that. Like, how is it that he made a million dollars in such an industry that was jacked up? Like, you know, beat making literally doesn't work for anybody. And so I started to backtrack and look at it, you know, the client, the climate of beat making at the time, you know, I was like, he's not selling his beats. He's not selling his beats. He's not selling the beats. But at the same time, people like Metro Boom and people like Zaytoven were earning millions from their beats even during that time, you know, people like Murder Beats, you know, uh, Boy Wanda, you know, uh, all these different people. I checked their net worth on, 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 um, on the Google and all these people were making millions and millions and millions per year, just selling the same things I was selling. And Gabe Schilling, who came in at virtually the same time, had made a killing off of it. And it kind of got me thinking, what did Gabe Schilling do that I didn't do? So I'm listening to his podcast, I'm listening to, listening to his podcast, listening to this interview. Um, he's talking, he's unwinding his beats. And um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is that he said. I don't remember what it is that he said. He said, uh, 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 you know, he, he said so many different points. And all of his points were kind of, you know, separate pockets of ideas that I couldn't really understand how it assimilated and how it worked. And so I kind of remember it was, it, I don't remember what month this was, but it was hot during the time. I kind of just shoved it off to the side and was like, ah, whatever, you know, it's over now. Uh, I chose in a different industry. Uh, and it, you know, he made it and I didn't, I don't know how he made it. It must've been luck. Um, but I remember if you fast forward, I hit this wall with freelance writing and I was looking for any solution that I could have to get it, get ahead. And I remember it was one hot day. Um, sunny day, man. I used to come out of my job at 8 a.m., 9 a.m. in the morning, and the sun would just be cracking over the horizon in the middle of summer, and it was absolutely gorgeous. Like, I'm, oh, man, I wish I could, you know, rewind and just experience that. I'm all the way across the country now. But I remember I would come out of my job, and I would just have my headphones on, and I'd be just jamming to the best music. Uh, you know, I remember this day particularly because this was the day, I don't remember what my man's name was. I don't remember his name, but... I used to see him on the other side of the street because we used to leave work at the same time or I used to leave before him. He used to catch up towards me and we used to walk towards the same neighborhood. He lived down the street from me. And I remember looking at him on the other side of the street and just waving. Beautiful day. The grass is blowing. Um, 
I'm just walking home, man. Uh, nice sunny summer morning. You know, people are jogging by. Sports teams are practicing in, in the school right next to the, my, my job. And it was a good day. And I was just listening for any information. Today, I wasn't listening to music. I was kind of in a state of like learning because when I would listen to music at my job, I would put in the headphones and I would dodge in between the hours. So my, you know, uh, employers didn't see me my bosses whatever you want to call them my uh, managers that's the proper word and uh so i came out of you know i worked that day with a burning curiosity like okay what is it you know what is it how do i solve this problem so i can get past this hoop and live the life that i want and i remember popping in the podcast and listening to the market of secrets podcast this was uh, at an era where i was just burning through every episode i've listened to every episode in that podcast to date but i remember stopping on a particular episode that russell brunson was talking about um, thriving really, and a, you know what, what you perceive as a downward spiral. He was talking about competition, and uh, I don't remember the gist of what he. Uh, I don't remember all of what he said, but the gist of what he said was this, and this is something that really I hadn't appealed to me before, and um, it kind of sparked my curiosity. He said, in every industry, there are businesses that try to thrive with products. Okay. And the problem with that is that products are a commodity. Okay, I'm listening like, so I shouldn't have a product is what you're saying, Russell. No, that's not what he's saying at all. <laughs> he's saying like so, so often that this happens that, you know, someone comes onto internet marketing or someone creates a business and they have this amazing product idea and they come up with this product and they get good results at first. They win at first. They're experiencing like, well, you know, like they're winning with this product. And then what happens shortly after is that someone else replicates their product. They pop up with a bootleg or an off-brand or something similar. They just replicate it. And then they pop up in the industry and now it's a competition between two identical products. And the only way most people think to win is they lower their price and they say, hey, they lowered their price and they lower their price. And the other person, they lower their price and it's a race to the bottom. And he said the reason that that happens is because, you know, your product is a commodity. You know, there's no brand loyalty or anything like that. There's no reason why someone would you, you know, you're targeting an audience that's shopping for you solely based off the fact that you're the only one with this product or that you're the lowest price of this product. Okay. And I don't even know if it was in the same podcast, but I remember someone said, man, there's no advantage to ban the second most cheap. And so if you can't be the cheapest, you might as well be the highly, most highly priced. Okay, and it kind of got me thinking like, okay, so you think if I have the same product, if I price it high, they're gonna wanna buy it? And the answer, long story short, listening to that podcast, he said no, because a product is a commodity. And what you have to do is you have to move to the next tier of things. Like, it, the way it's confusing for you is confusing, right? It was kind of confusing for me the same way. It's like, what what kind of rat race are you running me on? And he said, the next module that you have to, you know, have to consume is that you have to shift from having a product, which is a commodity and easily replicable to an offer. I'm like, I'm offering a product that, that, that is an offer. But he went on to explain. He said, a product is easily replicable. It's one solution. Whereas an offer it's an array of solutions and, array, and an array of solutions is much more difficult to mimic. Not only is it an array of solutions, it what an offer is, it's a core product plus value add, okay? And 
he began to break it down. And I don't want to get too technical on this, but he began to break it down in ways that I really hadn't thought of before. You know, um, there was this story that Stephen Larson would tell. He said, okay, I have a a chest, like it was like a chest that hold like toys, like like a toy chest or something like that in his bedroom. He said, man, if I had this toy chest and someone else had this toy chest, which one would you buy? Uh, and my thought was like, okay, I would just buy the cheapest. Same way if you have freelance writer right here and a freelance writer right here, I would buy the one that's the cheapest. But then he said, um, now I say I have this chest, right? And someone else has a chest, but I tell you that this chest is different. And I'm like, I would be inquisitive, like, how is it different, right? And he said, okay, well, this chest is the chest from, you know, this is a family heirloom that was passed down from generation throughout generation, throughout generation, throughout generation. And um, it's a historical artifact. It was owned by George Washington and all these different things. And I'm like, well, the value of the chest would go up. And so I would buy your chest if you were offering it, you know, at, at the same or even at a higher price. And um, in the podcast, he like, he's like, I'm not talking to him one-on-one, -on -one, but in the podcast, he's like, that's the whole entire concept. You know, it's the same exact item, but there's value added, you know, maybe in the storm of a form of story or an array of solutions. Russell Brunson said this, if I have an iPhone, right? And someone else has an iPhone, which one would you buy? Or if I have an iPhone, rather, how much would you pay for it? And my answer is the same as any standard iPhone on the market, 1200 But then Russell Brunson said, okay, if I gave you my iPhone and I said you get to keep every contact in it, you know, which is like Tony Robbins, Dean Graciosi, Frank Kern, all these legendary marketers and celebrities in the marketing world, how much would you pay for that cell phone? And suddenly I began to see the point. It kind of became more illustrated. This cell phone that you're having is not a product. It's an offer. It's an array of solutions. It's a core product with value added on top. And the ways that we add value on top of a product and make it an offer is to either add a, a, a multiple mini products, a mini solutions with it, like this. Uh, this is an example he gave in the podcast. He said, like if I'm a dentist, uh, or if I'm somebody who sells toothpaste, I can sell toothpaste, right? And you're probably gonna just look at the toothpaste and go for the cheaper toothpaste. Uh, you know, if my competitor's cheaper, you'll probably buy from them. But then he said, you know, a way that I can bump up the price is to bump up the value by adding a myriad of solutions. And he said, okay, I can sell toothpaste, but uh, what if I said, okay, I'm gonna throw in floss, I'm gonna throw in a teeth whitening kit, I'm gonna throw in, um, um, what else do they use? Uh, a spare toothbrush. I'm gonna throw in all these different things to meet a myriad of different needs that you have. Um, would I be able to bump the price up on that little kit that I'm given? The answer is obviously yes, because you bumped up the value. And so nine times out of 10, a lot of people are gonna see that you're higher value, even if you're, you know, the, the person that you're, you know, that's offering a competitive product is cheaper, and they're gonna go with the higher value. It's more bang for the buck. It's a myriad of solutions. You see what I'm saying? And so that's the miracle of creating a offer versus just having a product. Okay, and I remember just like, like the wheels in my head started to turn, like it started to screech out of their resting position and started to move when I'm hearing this. And uh, how 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 much more difficult is it for a competitor to like mimic an offer that you're having 
and give the same quality. A lot of people from competitors aren't even gonna look over and see that you're offering a bundle of things in the first place. But if, if, if they were, how, how are they gonna, like how much more personnel and money and all these different resources would they need just to mimic all these different things that you're creating? They would have to make a whole different department. It wouldn't really be possible. And so suddenly you can be more valuable and uh, be more, you know, and be more purchased and you're not competing on the basis of price, you know? And so the next thing that he said was, um, you know, let's say you have two of the same product, um, but one, you know, like, like just like the story of the chest, one is a brand that has, you know, a story or a culture behind it. It, it represents an idea. Like, for example, you have shoes, and then you have like, um, um, what's, what are those shoes called? Chucks? Uh, what are they called? Um, Crocs, not Crocs, um, Toms, it's Toms by Blake Mikowski. You know, if you know anything about Toms, Toms was the first shoe to do the buy one, give one away type of thing. You know, if you buy a pair of Toms, they give a pair of Toms to some kids down in Argentina. And, um, the reason that is, is because, uh, Tom, you know, Blake Mikowski from Toms, he went down to Argentina and he saw these kids down in Argentina who didn't have shoes and, um, you know, they were really struggling down there and the maker down there would make shoes for them, but they still couldn't get enough, enough shoes for a lot of people. So the design and the idea of the shoes came from Argentina. And so he's supplying shoes to Argentina when you buy a pair of Toms. And so that doesn't necessarily do anything for you, right? But it's a story that enhances the emotion that you feel towards the brand. And Toms, I believe, became a billion dollar company very quickly um, because there's a story behind it. They have a product, yeah, and you have a product, but they have a value add, whether it's in a form of a story, whether it's in a form of a sales message, or whether it's in a form of many products being added to what it is that you give. And so Blake, you know, Mike, I see his brand in a world where there were already millions of shoes of the same design blew up and never looked back. And so, you know, when I learned some of this information, I didn't really know what to make of it. And so I kind of sat on it thinking. But then little ideas started to pop in my mind of what I could make this right. What what you know, what do what do the people that I'm assisting, what do they need the most? And so the first thing I thought of was, okay, they meet they might need a sales funnel. Okay, they want to sell their book. Maybe they need a book cover. They probably want to go to a book cover after this. Maybe they can add that in for free with them. You see, I'm adding it for free, but I'm boosting up my price because I can boost up the I can boost up my price also because I'm boosting up the value, even if I say I'm just charging them for this one thing. Uh, maybe they need um, email sequences written out for the people who get their book. Uh, you know, what is it that they need? Um, I do things a lot differently now. I don't just say, okay, here's a book. I say, okay, we're gonna write this book for you. We're gonna design the cover for you. We're gonna design the funnel for you. And we're gonna design a six month campaign for you to actually go and launch this book. So what would you pay for six months of designing a book in a particular type of way uh, around your core idea? Six months, you know, um, having a professionally designed cover, um, a funnel, you know, that aligns your book with the rest of everything, your business in which you sell. Like the value of that is five, six, seven, like it's, it's a massively valuable thing. And so... There's no way someone will look at this offer and look at another freelance writer and be like, well, 
I'm going to choose them instead because they're cheaper. They're paying you not at your, just for the product, but for your expertise and for the myriad of solutions that you offer in your product. And when I realized that, it kind of got me looking at the freelance writing industry like, there's nothing wrong with this industry. This industry is going down, is not going downhill. It's a lot of people offering commodities. They're offering something that someone else is offering and can easily reparate and replicate. And the only differentiation point between them is the price. You know, and so I kind of start forming offers. And really when I started forming offers and having that bundle put together, that's when the bigger sales started to flow in. That's when it was easier to get on the telephone and say, hey, this is the price that I'm offering. Uh, take it or leave it. And people started to take it. Um, I, I wrote this down in my notebook in so much more detail, but I don't have it with me. It's upstairs right now. But uh, that's that, that's pretty much the idea. And uh, when I realized this, you know, when it comes to the vehicle that you choose, because I remember, man, um, so many people say drop shipping is dead. Drop shipping is dead. Why are people making money with drop shipping then? I have this guy I follow on, uh, you know, his name is Mark. You can follow him on Instagram at no BS drop shipping. And uh, tell him I sent you. Tell him uh, Junie Prayer sent you. Um, if you go follow him, no BS drop shipping. And uh, he 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 posted his stats or something like that. And what I saw, you know, I'm not saying this is what he's necessarily making. I don't want any false income claims or anything like that. But it said he made he posted his like stats and it was like thirty thousand dollars in thirty days. You know, um, something crazy like that. You know, and this is during the coronavirus and so. He's still making money within that industry. Uh, they say webinars are dead, but Stephen Larson's posting his webinar stats. He's making hundreds and hundreds of thousands from these webinars. You know, they say everything. I mean, it's just a perpetual thing. Every industry is dead to the people in that industry. So you'll hop from industry to industry and you'll think it's dead. You'll think it's something wrong with freelance writing. But here's the thing that I realized. When I jumped on the game, the vehicle that I was using to play was the controller. And I always won and my brothers didn't. And why is that? It's because really what it came down to, and here's what I realized, is not the vehicle itself. It's the skill in which you employ when you go to use that vehicle. So it's not about the controller. It's about how well I can play. You know, it's not about the vehicle freelance riding or drop shipping or anything like that. It's about the marketing mind that you put behind. It's like the marketing and the skill that you put behind it. Okay. And as we know, you don't have to learn marketing. You don't have to learn all these different skills. You just have to know the techniques that they use. The number ones in the industry use and model after them. Because when I hopped into freelance writing, it wasn't like I was a super marketing mind. I looked at what was working in other industries and just modeled the same thing. But it's not the industry, it's not It's not freelance writing isn't broken. Freelance writing isn't going downhill. It's that people are marketing their businesses with inside freelance writing poorly because the experts in the freelance writing secrets either don't know or that they're telling them to do so. It's a wildfire. The freelance writing is the industry is a wildfire. I remember Steve, Stephen Larson, I just listened to his podcast the other day, and he was saying, you know, a lot of people, you know, he, he didn't have the best piano in his house, and other people had better pianos. But, you know, people would go and play on piano. You know, his friends would go play on pianos and say, oh, I have such skill. And they would play on their nice pianos and uh, they wouldn't make really good music. But even on his piano that wasn't as nice, he would still make good music. 
and he realized, okay, it's not the piano. The piano, the vehicle itself, doesn't make a difference. It's you, it's the skill in which you employ to maneuver in that vehicle that makes all the difference. It has nothing to do with anything outside of ourselves. Everything comes down to an internal issue. You know, when I, when, when I was going to make friends and socializing in high school, it wasn't the people. You know, I, it wasn't, you know, the people that's stopping me from being in part of this distribution channel. It's internally who I have to become or what skills do I have to employ in order to make this vehicle work for me. That's what it's all about. It always comes down to you. Everything's within our power and everything's within our control. It's not the controller. It's the person behind it. And um, that's kind of a little bit of what I realized. Um, yeah, that's really all I have to say in this podcast episode. This is Freelance Writing Secrets. This is Dallas. And man, I appreciate you for listening. I really do appreciate you for sticking along with me. Um, if you wanna, if you want me to go more, if you want, you know, to learn more about what I'm talking about here, if you want, because if you listen to this, you you would probably start to despise the idea of sending out pitches. Somebody's not having a good time. You probably disgust, you know, be disgusted at the idea of pitches, kind of like I am, and some of the things that people are teaching to to get ahead, because all of it is like mumbo jumbo if you really break it down you're probably starting to realize that by watching this video and so if you're interested in learning more about this if you're interested in because this is the entire idea automating the process of getting clients and having clients come to you automatically and you don't have to go out there and search for them and as a result of them coming to you automatically they pay good in their dream clients that you actually want to work with um so if you're interested in that you know i have a special training for you this training is absolutely free it's free don't worry it's free and I'm not going to pitch you on any products in the training. I'm not going to charge you anything to take it. It's absolutely free. I'm just elaborating and going way, way more deep on what I'm teaching you right here. If you don't want to pitch anymore, if you want to survive in this tanking client of freelance writing, um, it's a, it's a five-day video series. You know, I leak out a video to you, one video per day. And you can get access to that at www.memoirlaunch.com slash writing secrets. It's forward slash, so slash it like this, I think www.memoirlaunch.com slash writing secrets and uh you can go and download the training there it'll be uh, a series of five videos it's absolutely free i won't pitch you anything in any of the videos at all uh yeah i'm sincere on that if i do you can post it on my page and i'll leave it up and you can you know tear me to pieces all day but uh i'm really just in this to just kind of you know give you as much of the real as possible because i really don't agree with, with some of the things that's going on you know out there you know this is i say this, this is the real revolution man <laughs> i'm not trying to be smart when i say that uh, it's, it just it is what it is this is the real revolution um and look man i'm so excited to share with you uh some of the other stuff that i got to share with you man i've been making a lot of notes uh, my little red book and uh it, it, if you could see what was in there, you probably. Anyhow, this is Dallas and this is Freelance Writing Secrets. I appreciate you so much for listening. Uh, look out for next episode. It'll probably be tomorrow or today. I'll start going live and all that stuff. Um, thanks for listening. Peace out.